0: I'm Dr. Omar Khan.
1: I'm Dr. Shannon Gowland. I'm Dr. Tiffany Dursey. And welcome to Vet Sessions. Hello everyone, I'm Dr. Shannon Gowland and I'm your host today on Vet Sessions. Welcome. Today, I'm very excited to have a conversation with Dr. Chris Pinard, who is a veterinary oncology specialist. Welcome, Chris.
0: Thanks for having me.
1: So excited to have you here. So I thought we could start off by getting to know you a little bit. So oncology is such a great specialty for so many reasons, but I was wondering what you love so much about it.
0: Well, to be honest, I became an oncologist originally because my own dog had cancer Mm. and you know, going through that process was really tough, but I think what I really appreciate is the support and people around me uh, during that period of time. And so when I came into clinics or actually I should say even backtracking a little bit, being a vet student. Mm -hmm. Dr. Paul Woods, who a lot of people know here at OVC, he he brought in some clients as well that their dog was going through lymphoma treatment or a CHOP protocol. And they were so appreciative of the entire staff and their dog was doing so much better on treatment. And it was like something clicked for me during that lecture. And I was like, you know what? This is amazing. This is really what I want to do. And as time has gone on, I think the more and more you learn about oncology, the new therapies coming out, the way that we can bridge human and veterinary care, to try and improve the lives of pets, but also people at the same time, just really resonated with me. And I was like, this is, this is exactly what I need to do. This is super cool. That's so amazing. I yeah. Oh,
1: that's amazing. Yeah. I'm so glad you like it so much. It's that cool. It's great. It's cool. It's definitely a cool specialty. So, um, so what was your career path though, to become an oncologist, just in case some of our listeners are interested in maybe following in your footsteps? Yeah.
0: So like a lot of the other specialties, I mean, at the end of the day, you go through vet school yeah. and then you have to go ahead and do an internship, general rotating internship, which I did downtown Toronto. And then I ended up doing a specialty internship at Colorado State University, and it was actually in clinical trials, which was super fun. So I got to not only manage and take care of and, and work with the whole oncology team there, but I kind of felt lucky in the sense that I got this sort of extra edge where I got to see clinical trials happening, working with human specialists and things as well, which was super cool. And then from there, I came back to OVC, uh, back home to, to do my residency. And then now I've been out in practice after my three years. So it was a, a long road for sure. It's a lot of work. Yeah. Um, but I have to say, you know, I, I've learned a lot about myself mm-hmm. and I've also learned just a lot in general. I feel really, really excited about it in the next sort of chapter.
1: Fantastic. Good yeah. for you. Good for you. That's cool. So let's jump into our topic, which is lymphoma today. So I thought we kind of start with the basics. So can you give us sort of a basic description of what lymphoma is just for yeah. our listeners?
0: Yeah. So lymphoma, I kind of tend to put lymphoma and leukemia together in the sense that they are both cancers of white blood cells. One derives mainly from the bone marrow. The other is usually associated with a lymph node primarily. Um, So it truly is a cancerous association with lymphocytes or white blood cells. They can be B or T lymphocytes, which are kind of our two flavors, how Mm -hmm. I tell it to clients. Um, And that's pretty much it.
1: Okay. Thank you. And then, so I know there are multiple types of lymphoma and as usual, dogs and cats are very different in how they do pretty much everything because cats are special. (laughs) So uh, did you want to kind of go over um, some of the presentations and the prognosis?
0: Sure. Uh, I think it's always tough because... There are definitely more common lymphomas associated that we see in dogs, like the multicentric type, which is very similar to Mm -hmm. non-Hodgkin's lymphoma in people, which the way I explain it to clients is just that it's truly their peripheral lymph nodes. The lymph nodes on the outside of the body that you can feel, that's generally what it's associated with, and it's multicentric. So multiple areas are typically affected at the same time. Mm -hmm. But we also do see lymphomas that primarily arise from the central nervous system. We can see ocular lymphomas. We can see hepatosplenic lymphoma, which has its own designated behavior, Gastrointestinal lymphoma and even rectal lymphoma is different than that. So, lymphoma is one of those diseases that really just can kind of brew anywhere, come from anywhere. But that distinction is really important clinically because it can change things for us so dramatically and change things in terms of prognosis, change things in terms of how we treat those patients, et cetera. So, I guess I would say in dogs, really the most common is truly multicentric lymphoma. So, mm-hmm. for a lot of the students out there that might be listening, Those are the dogs that you're going to see for an annual vaccine visit that may or may not be feeling 100%. And oh gosh, they've noticed some very large lumps under the chin or something along those lines. On the other hand, in cats, what we typically see is more sort of that small cell IBD-like lymphoma that can have, you know, thickened intestines and things like that and gastrointestinal signs associated with. And it's very interesting because we don't see it as commonly in dogs. We do see it in cats all the time. And those lymphomas tend to be more indolent, so they're more slowly progressive, have a much better prognosis. Uh, we're talking years with control uh, compared to dogs where we try very aggressive therapy and we still can, generally speaking, attain a year in terms of median survival, which is great in, yeah. in our terms, uh, sometimes better than that, uh, but there are definitely you know some that do much poorer than that as well.
1: Yeah, for sure. For sure. And definitely in general practice, those are the, the two types of lymphoma that I think I see most often is the multicentric in dogs and then the IBD, yeah. bridging onto lymphoma with cats. Yeah. yeah.
0: But one sort of interesting tidbit would be the rectal lymphoma that I mentioned earlier. Yes. So that's one that tends to very much start really at the colorectal region. There can be other lymph node involvement or other intestinal involvement downstream, but if we believe it's truly colorectal in origin, the papers have actually elucidated that you can potentially treat those patients locally if it's only local disease, which is very atypical for lymphoma, or you can treat them systemically and they can have years of control, wow. which is very, very different.
1: Wow. Mm-hmm. Okay. And local treatment, uh, maybe you want to get into that later with treatment, but I, I would love to hear more about that too. Yeah. Interesting. For sure. Okay. Perfect. So starting with dogs, what would you like us to know about kind of how lymphoma presents to us in general practice? You said a little bit about it already, um, but I wonder like what kind of clinical signs are we looking for most often? What are we most likely to see?
0: Yeah, you're exactly right. So like, as I kind of alluded to before, a peripheral lymphadenopathy is, is obviously the most common or owners find lumps under the chin or something like that. Mm -hmm. Um, but certainly some of the other things that we look at, especially prognostically would be things like substage. So are you healthy or are you sick at the time of diagnosis? And also we can see things like perineoplastic syndromes or syndromes related to having lymphoma, um, associated with these dogs. And one that usually comes to mind is hypercalcemia usually only associated with T cell lymphomas and around 25 to 30% of dogs with T cell lymphoma will have a hypercalcemia. So there'll be PUPD. They may have muscle fasciculations. If it's high enough, we can have very, very high calciums in these dogs. And one of the points that I always try to drive home to the students is that you might see a total hypercalcemia that looks very mild, but you really need that ionized calcium to really elucidate how bad it actually is.
1: Yeah, for sure. Mm -hmm. Okay. Thank you. So if we get the the high total calcium, then we should follow up with an ionized calcium. Totally. Pretty much always to make sure that's accurate. Okay. Well, and I find
0: even too, like some of the patients that I do have, I'll I'll just generally ask most of my lymphoma patient owners, you know, how are they drinking and peeing and and how does that actually look for you at home? Because if they've even noticed a change, I'll just run an ionized calcium, regardless of what the CBC chem looks like. Just want to know.
1: Okay, that's fair. Sounds good. So, what other steps should we take to make the diagnosis? And do you have any tips and tricks for getting good diagnostic samples? Yeah,
0: um, I guess I would say don't overburden your smears. So, fine needle aspirates are yeah. certainly the uh, treatment or the diagnostic of choice. I have had some referrals in the past, and you know whether I was a resident or elsewhere, where people have gone straight to biopsy.
1: Biopsy is not wrong.
0: Um, I mean, I think it's a very interesting way of getting a diagnosis. I think there's a little less invasive, easier, cheaper diagnostics for for our patients like FNA. And usually we can get that routinely. But with that said, I I should bite my tongue a little bit because (laughs) there are definitely patients that have more atypical lymphomas. And sometimes to get the sort of architecture of lymphoma to know does this look more like it what we call a t-zone lymphoma which is actually much more indolent and those are dogs like the classic i think of as a golden retriever that comes with really big gnarly lymph nodes but feels yeah. fantastic mm-hmm. you aspirate those and it actually turns out to be a more indolent lymphoma that can happen it's okay. more rare but it can definitely happen and biopsy is really the best way to get that sample however i will say at the end of the day it's much easier just to go ahead and get an fna For sure. So my words of wisdom are FNA first. If there's any questions, certainly you can biopsy down the line if you need to. Um, The other thing too with FNA, as I sort of said right at the beginning, is that one of the things that I tend to do is I will kind of squirt out onto the smear, but I'll actually flip the other slide over that I'm about to use as a smear, dab it down and lift it up because that way you've kind of dispersed the material over two slides and then I get another smear and I smear those out. Oh, interesting. Okay. the thing the pathologists hate the most is to have such a dense smear that they can't tell what's going on so it's nicer to have them spread out and be gentle they're fragile little cells and you'll smear their material everywhere
1: okay those are really good tips so rather than doing a classic squash prep which is poorly named because you don't actually squash anything (laughs) uh you want to actually dip it in and then spread it out okay that's great yeah we will do that next time perfect um so, so you already kind of talked a little bit about what the different types of lymphoma are, um, and so how would you say this relates to the prognosis?
0: Yeah, so, I mean, generally speaking, the other thing I tend to tell students as well is when you read a pathology report, really pay close attention, whether it's histology or cytology, pay attention to cell size. And if it's not reported, talk to the pathologist. Okay. Cell size is a predictor of behavior. Those, as I said before, with the cats, like a small cell, more indolent lymphoma, is just that usually more indolent. The larger the cell, the more immature, Mm -hmm. the more likely it is to be a high grade, more aggressive lymphoma. That's usually what I pay most attention to.
1: Okay. That makes lots of sense. Thank you. And then you, we talked a little bit about how cats are special. So it sounds like lymphoma is different for them, partly in the sense that maybe GI is more common.
0: Mm -hmm. Um, The GI lymphoma is definitely more common in cats. Like I've had a handful of cases where we actually do see multicentric lymphoma in cats and really? it is documented. Yeah, mm, it does okay. happen. Uh, renal lymphoma is also another one. Yeah. Again, speaking of other places that lymphoma can affect. Um, but generally speaking, what comes to mind, yes, yeah, is, is that the small cell, more indolent lymphomas, and again, I know I keep saying that terminology over, but it's to drive that point home that we treat those cats very differently. However, they can still get more large cell, more aggressive lymphomas. And so one thing that we do tend to pay attention to for whatever reason, the small cell lymphomas tend to be more diffuse in nature. So they look like an IBD or inflammatory bowel disease where you have thickened or diffusely thickened intestines. They don't generally make a mass effect. So if you have a cat that has a multi-segmental, either enteropathy or multi-segmental mass-like effects happening, more likely to be more large cell or maybe a different tumor entirely rather than something more small cell in phenotype. Okay. The other thing is that You can still see uh, lymph node involvement with small cell lymphomas. So just because you have a regional lymph node, mesenteric lymph node or something that might be a little bit enlarged, which I know we may not always see in general practice, but certainly if you're referring and an owner's talking to you about that, that has no prognostic significance when we're talking about small cell lymphomas.
1: Okay. Mm -hmm. Okay. All right. Good to know for sure. So maybe now we can take a moment just to thank our sponsors, uh, OVC Pet Trust. This episode of Vet Sessions is generously sponsored by OVC Pet Trust. OVC Pet Trust is a charitable fund based at the University of Guelph's Ontario Veterinary College, and it funds groundbreaking research and discovery to improve companion animal health. In fact, today's guest, Dr. Pinard, is an OVC Pet Trust funded researcher whose work explores iPhone photogrammetry, which is using iPhone photography to create 3D images of oral tumors for response monitoring. It's really interesting. So to learn more about the work of OVC Pet Trust, please visit www.pettrust.ca. Thank you, Pet Trust. And now back to our discussion. So let's talk a little bit about lymphoma treatment. Um, would you like to review some of the common treatment options and maybe tell us about some of the newer therapies coming available? I know there are some really exciting new drugs.
0: Yeah, for sure. Uh, I mean, I think we should probably preface just about chemotherapy in general, because I think that scares a lot of people, Absolutely. a lot of general practitioners, a lot of students. I mean, I had my reservations when I was a student as well. Yeah. At the end of the day, chemotherapy is very different in dogs and cats than it is in people, uh, cats in particular, as usual. Yes. Um, but we think that the dogs in in particular that are getting chemotherapy, about 30% will have some form of side effect. And yes, it can be things like vomiting, diarrhea, low white blood cell count or neutropenia. Um, but we don't tend to see the same kind of hair loss that we see in people. Mm-hmm. We still can, but because dog hair follicles don't turn over as quickly, we don't tend to see the same way. Um, but that 30% the large majority of those dogs will do fine with things like Serenia, metronidazole, you know, anti-diarrhea, anti-nausea medications to help yeah. get them through any predictable episodes that we typically expect. And less than 5% of dogs actually need to come back to hospital as a such a severe complication associated with their chemo that they need to be hospitalized. Okay, So that's a spiel I, I tell most of our clients in the sense that It's not that there aren't concerns with giving chemotherapy, but the side effects are so much less than what we see in people. And in general, we make our patients feel better than worse or that they don't have any side effects at all. And that's the hope. Um, When it comes to the kind of gold standard for for dogs with lymphoma, the CHOP protocol has been what's tried and true. We're not chopping lymph nodes out of these dogs, (laughs) but this is more, it's an acronym um, for several different drugs that we use. So cyclophosphamide doxorubicin, which is the H, but I'll spare you the details on that one. (laughs) Um, O is oncovin or vincristine, and then P is prednisone. And depending on where you're trained, I was trained here, so we do a 25-week protocol. Um, There are other protocols that are 19-week, 15-week, but as you start to narrow those week intervals, there can be more side effects with that. So Mm -hmm. we've traditionally just been very comfortable with giving the 25-week, which is why we continue to do that. And it's not every week. And that's what I try to explain to clients too, is that even though 25 weeks sounds like a really long time, there's lots of breaks in between. Some of them are oral, so one of them is oral. So you can actually do that one at home. You still need to go to your vet to get a CBC done, but very manageable. And most of our clients actually don't mind the protocol at all. Um, So that's sort of what's been tried and true for a long period of time. And in people, that's still what they give today is chop. But they do give something called R-CHOP, and that's the R is something called rituximab, which is an uh, immunotherapy or antibody that targets something called CD20 in the B-cells. So this is for okay. B-cell lymphoma. And it has made leaps and bounds in terms of the prognosis for people with non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. Now, they tried it in dogs, mm-hmm. but unfortunately, even though it was approved, it didn't uphold what was needed to stay in the clinic. So they've kind of gone back to the drawing board, and that's still hopefully going to be coming down the pipeline in the future. Okay. More recently, though, and I think, again, speaking to what's really available in terms of comparative oncology, so using dogs to study natural diseases in people, is a drug called Laverdia. So there's a company called Anavive, and they have used some group of artificial intelligence to go through basically an entire drug set, drug molecule set to look at, based on X, Y, and Z, this is what lymphoma in dogs should be theoretically most um, sensitive to. And so this drug is an XPO1 inhibitor. No idea what that is. <laughs> <laughs> so it's exportin. So that's, it's a sort of short form. Okay. But my simplest terminology is it basically stops the signals from leaving the brain of the cell, the nucleus to be sent out elsewhere in terms of replication, division, et cetera. So it kind of puts the stop on the bridge that allows those molecules to cross. Wow. And so the one benefit of this drug is that they can, owners can give it at home. So, it's given three times a week, if I remember correctly. Um, we don't have it here. We have it on emergency drug release in Canada, okay. but I think it will come eventually. Um, but I think it just again highlights the fact that this is a drug class that's starting to be used in humans, but we as veterinarians in parallel are starting to use these drugs as well. So, we're gaining a lot of information from each other. Wow. And we learned a lot by using things like technology and AI to get there, which is super cool. Um, there's also a drug called Tenovia, which again is on emergency drug release. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they have it in the states, of course, not not here. Of course, um, which again I'll spare you the details, but it it is basically very very good at killing lymphocytes only. So wow. only works in lymphomas or round cell tumors. It does appear that it may have some effect with other diseases like multiple myeloma and some others, um, but that's not been published yet. So interesting. But but it's a great drug. It's IV. It's usually very well tolerated. We do see some unique side effects. But again, some really, really interesting therapies coming down the pipeline that may or may not be available in Canada in the future.
1: Well, it's good to know there are alternatives coming out. Absolutely.
0: Always something new.
1: For sure. Maybe in oncology, even more than some other fields. You know, it seems to really advance by leaps and bounds
0: quickly. I, I agree. And I, I don't know what it is. I don't know if it's drive, if it's funding, if it's just that, again, comparative aspect that's been so well pushed over the last decade that maybe people kind of see the highlights of that, the drug companies see the highlights of that. Because I do think like even internal medicine and things, there. there's lots of ways that we could cross over with human medicine and we need to continue doing so.
1: Yeah, for sure. That's really interesting. Mm-hmm. And so uh, so, how about I know that all these therapies obviously count with a cost. Mm-hmm. So, sometimes in primary care, we also do have owners who aren't able to afford referral to oncology. So, sometimes we will diagnose, for instance, a multicentric lymphoma in a dog. Mm-hmm. Um, what recommendations do you have for us for owners who, who choose not to be referred or who can't be referred?
0: Absolutely. I mean, at the end of the day, I, I get cases like that too, right? People yeah. need to hear the information. And, and I think I, I took a. I hope Danielle Richardson's listening to this, Dr. Richardson, <laughs> one of the the oncologists at Guelph here. Um, you know, I took a page from her as a, a resident that it's always just nice to have the conversation. So not to push your clients ever into a referral, but if they just want to have a conversation with an oncologist, more information is better than, you know, not enough information in terms of decision-making. So I've always taken that to heart. Um, but The reality is, yeah, veterinary care does cost and and some of these therapies are expensive. And so in those cases, there are still options either. And and I usually present about four different options to clients. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, the CHOP protocol, certainly the gold standard, but there are definitely others where we take one drug out of the CHOP protocol and use it on its own or some other less expensive drugs that we can use as a chemotherapy protocol. In general practice, you may or may not be comfortable giving chemo, which fair enough. Um, and that's where things like prednisone alone are still very feasible options that if you have a sick dog with lymphoma in front of you, definitely reach for the, the prednisone. If they don't want to move forward with referral, if we know that the diagnostics have been done and we're confident in our diagnosis, prednisone is very fair and can still provide a good quality of life for about two months in those dogs.
1: For sure. Yeah. And we do offer that here. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay, thank you. But yeah, really, point well taken. We do definitely always encourage referral, at least to have the conversation and see what the options are. And we make it really clear that referral doesn't lock the clients into anything. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's just worth talking to you guys about what the options are.
0: Well, and I think, too, in the age of telehealth now, mm-hmm. I think that makes it so much easier because, you know, even for me and my own doctor's appointments, I'm so happy now that I can do it from the comfort of my computer and just feel well informed and, and walk away. And I mean, I, I think it speaks to like, I've never personally been in general practice, which makes, makes it really hard sometimes in the sense that I think you guys do a very difficult job <laughs> and you do it extremely well. I was here at the PHC. I remember what it was like and you, know, you balance so many things, but I think if I can take away or, or if I can provide one piece is that, you know, we as a community are always there for each other in terms of specialists and general practitioners that we have to do everything we can to uplift one another um, and support one another. And that includes a simple phone call or a simple text to be like, what would you do with this case? Cause I'm not sure what's going on. Cause I've got lots of questions that I'm going to ask you guys about my own cat after this. So
1: perfect. Yeah. <laughs> my ears are open, but yeah, absolutely. We have such a great profession in terms of everybody supporting each other and definitely, absolutely. definitely greatly appreciated for sure. So in terms of oncology, I, I do think that part of the reason why we might turn to you quite often with questions is it is one of the most rapidly advancing fields and, um, you know, it's, it's impossible to keep up with everything and I don't know how you do it actually. So <laughs> um, so I imagine that's like really exciting and also really challenging. So where do you see oncology going?
0: I think the biggest hottest topics right now are immunotherapy. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that comes from really the human side because the one of I guess the nobel prize was just released again but prior to that um was uh, awarded to folks working on immunotherapy that were so pivotal in changes in in human medicine and so i think that drive on that side of things has now driven the the veterinary side to go that route as well um i think genomic testing is really big too it's you know we talk about buzzwords and things mm-hmm. like that but but definitely genomic testing is out there right now and we can certainly talk a little bit about that in a few moments but um, the other is is hopefully, and, and what I hope for because that's my own passion, is using technology, artificial intelligence and things not to replace clinicians because yeah. I don't think it'll ever do that. It's a tool like anything else. Um, but to really enhance our ability to predict or help with figuring out what treatment might be most effective for a patient and why. And so that's, I guess, one other sort of category which kind of fits all well together with this is personalized medicine or yeah. personalized cancer therapy. Wow. So the same way that you or I would, you know, if we have a patient with a UTI and we'd run a bacterial culture, add the same principles to a patient's tumor and say, okay, well, based on this mutation, we're going to throw this drug at it, which is normally good for pancreatic cancer, but might be good for your lymphoma because that's what your tumor told us to give. And and we're getting there in both veterinary and human uh, oncology.
1: That's incredible. It's super
0: cool. Yeah. Yeah. It's super cool. Amazing.
1: Amazing. Wow. And it's so great that you have an interest in technology. You know, um, I know that um, artificial intelligence is what your uh, sort of your passion mm-hmm. as well. So tell us more about that.
0: So what I've been doing um, as of late, I, I had the opportunity to spend some time and continue to spend time uh, at a lab in at Sunnybrook Hospital. Who's heavily focused in in artificial intelligence with Dr. Tran. Shout out to him. Really? Um, who's a really awesome individual who, who's really kind of driven that passion for me. And, you know, they're looking at things like what we call radiomics, which is, um, I think uh, Dr. Appleby talked about that on on your podcast before, but basically in its simplest form, it's taking pixel by pixel changes on CT scans, x-rays, et cetera, and correlating that with clinical data. Um, So you might find, or or you might not be able yourself to find a pattern, but the computer might find a pattern that says, okay, based on all of this going on, calculate, calculate, calculate that this patient has a mangiosarcoma. And we may not have ever been able to understand that or detect that, but it does. The other is using things like pathomics, which is looking at things on a histologic scale and either making mitotic count autonomized or um, looking at spatial relationships. So the way cells are interacting with one another on an individual basis and saying, okay, based on the way these white blood cells are sitting here next to this bed of tumor that patient has a worse prognosis or, or better response to chemotherapy than this patient does for reasons we may not exactly understand, but the computer certainly is telling us that wow. and then trying to divulge and really understand what that all means. So it's very complex, but also simple in a lot of ways. And it's so, so interesting. And I think we'll get there in a lot of ways.
1: Wow. Good for you. That must be incredible.
0: It's very cool. It's very cool. And it's it's cool to be a part of it, um, you know, as much as I can devote time to. So.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It, it seems like there are a lot of tie-ins with your work and human medicine, which has got to be really rewarding as well. So. It
0: is. Absolutely. My, uh, my mom was actually diagnosed with uh, breast cancer this oh, past I'm year. Sorry. She's doing fine. She's Great. doing fine. She had a, a tumor removed. But I think, again, it's those experiences that really highlight that you know, that's driven a program for me where I do want to start looking more at breast cancer and dogs and how we can help other women with breast cancer, because it is so, so important. And I think we can really kind of lead one another and to a a very common goal, which is so cool about comparative oncology.
1: Yeah. I love that idea. Excellent. Well, thanks for telling us about that. That's really interesting. So, um, I want to hear more about the clinic I've been hearing about. So I've been hearing some rumors about It's Lakeshore Animal Health Partners, correct? Yeah. 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 Tell me more.
0: So it's a new hospital. Um, So there's Toronto Animal Health Partners, but this is a a new kind of sister clinic or Mm -hmm. a new clinic that's opening up um, in the Mississauga area. Um, And so it's a 25,000 foot facility, um, brand new, Um, like there was a building there, but they've kind of gutted everything and trying to really make again, what's available in humans available to pets. And so There's going to be a three Tesla MRI there, which is kind of the highest standard right now. Um, A CT scan there that's very similar to what we have here at Guelph and a lot of services that I think would be great for students. So, you know, oncology, myself will be there. Got a big critical care department that are going to be able to do things like ventilation and teach students about those things, which is really great. Amazing. Um, A full ER team, which is great because we always need those folks.
1: Oh, we do. Yeah. As
0: well as uh, things like potentially dentistry. We're looking at some cardiology teams as well as our internal medicine in neurology, et cetera. So hoping that we can provide more access to the students locally because you know, Mississauga is not too far and mm-hmm. I know they always need to rotation. So hoping to really be kind of a part of that community because it's so, so important.
1: That's fantastic. I know that the students are really, they, they really have trouble finding really great external electives sometimes and the electives are in such high demand. So that will be absolutely amazing. Absolutely. So everybody should keep, t- could stay tuned. Um, when is it opening?
0: It's opening in March. Okay. So March, uh, well, Around the first or second week of March is the planned
1: opening date right now. Okay, fantastic. Yeah. That's wonderful. Yeah. Congratulations. That's Thanks. really exciting.
0: Yeah, it's super exciting. And I'm hoping that, you know, as a team, we can continue to do some research in coordination with Guelph and with Sunnybrook and with other collaborators and, and really just try to put it out there that, you know, whether you're in private practice or academia, you know, you can do things that interest you and, and take it off from there. Fantastic.
1: Fantastic. Well, I have so enjoyed our conversation. Thank you so much me for too. coming to talk to me today. Yeah, we thank really you so much. We really appreciate it. So um, thanks to our listeners for spending time with us today. And uh, if you have suggestions for a future podcast, please email us at vetsessions@hotmail.com. Please also follow us on Instagram at Vetsessions. And everybody take care. See you next time. Thank, thank you. you.